friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, our legal advisor, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. And this week, our guests are, as always, fabulous. Our first guest, Professor Melissa Moschella from Catholic University, is going to be talking about some of the ethics involved in the pandemic and taking on a Harvard Law professor's attack on homeschooling. And also, Father Jeffrey Kirby is going to be talking about his book, We Are the Lords, which helps us to uh, embrace some of the Catholic teaching on end-of-life issues. But first, we have Father Anthony Robbie, an Australian priest and the personal secretary to Cardinal George Pell, who has agreed to give us a few minutes of his precious time. Welcome to the show, Father Robbie. Thank you very much. Very kind. Father, I can just begin to imagine your joy when you found out that the Australian High Court had unanimously acquitted Cardinal Pell of those heinous charges of sexual abuse. Yes, it was a terrible shock to us, uh, uh, the whole dreadful experience that the poor man has gone through. So a wonderful relief that at that last he's received justice. Father, you visited the Cardinal twice during his incarceration, and our good friend George Weigel wrote that the Cardinal considered his imprisonment an extended retreat. And I've been thinking a lot about that phrase as we've all been under stay-at-home rules here, and, and I'm not able to consider this an extended retreat for myself. What kind of guidance uh, can you, and especially in having spoken with the Cardinal, give to all of us on how we can take uh, his example, his supernatural outlook, and apply it to this difficult time. Well, the, the Cardinal was, has been very clear from the very beginning that one has to roll with the punches. You uh, make the, the best of the situation you're in. And if uh, God has allowed this to uh, come his way, then obviously uh, he has the opportunity to make something out of it and an opportunity for spiritual growth and for meditation and a bit of examination of conscience in the, the long hours uh, that pass in those days of solitary confinement. All of us have um, an opportunity to make the most of this period of uh, withdrawal from our normal routine uh, to have a little bit of a closer look at the norm, the, the you know the the underlying uh, principles of our life I suppose and what really matters to us it sounds like uh, Cardinal Pell was able to have great spiritual growth uh, through this through this terrible thing that happened to him but what was it like as a friend as a longtime friend and associate of the Cardinals to see such a good and righteous man like the Cardinal being treated so shamefully and in such a public way well well, it was a terribly agonizing thing, of course, for all of his friends uh, to watch the a great injustice being played out like this. A mounting degree of shock and disbelief, I suppose, as the months stretched into years and one incomprehensible development followed another. Bafflement, really, uh, until finally an enormous relief. And for many of us, it, it was a cause of considerable shame, really, even, even to be Australian and to think that such things were possible in our country. I would never have imagined as an Australian that something like this could have happened. So it was an enormous relief and perhaps a little point of pride that the High Court showed its professionalism at the end there. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that concerned me, Father, during the imprisonment, Cardinal Pell was not permitted to celebrate the Mass. And the, the difficulty and the sting of that is something that we're living ourselves. Many of us are not able to actually be present in, in the Mass. We're only able to watch it live stream. How did the Cardinal face that? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> it's probably better for the Cardinal to answer that sort of a question himself, but uh, obviously it was a, a, a cause of immense uh, suffering for him and uh, uh, anguish on his part, and uh, he's enormously relieved at long last to be able to live out his own priestly ministry. Father, we, we don't have much time left, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the cause. Um, you're the official postulator for the, the beatification cause of an Australian woman named Eileen yes. Rose. Rosaline O'Connor. Maybe you can take the last minute and you can tell us a little bit about this good woman. Yes, she lived about a hundred years ago. She didn't live very long. She, she died before the age of 30, lived as a, a cripple, bed-bound most of her life and in constant pain. And in that condition, 
her thought was only for those less fortunate than herself, so she founded a little community to provide home nursing care for the poor. Based entirely upon um, the precepts of the church, they became religious sisters after she died, um, but they venerated and loved her as the living presence of, of God in their midst. And um, uh, she, can, she is accredited with many, many miracles, um, both during her lifetime and since she died. There's never been a diminution of devotion to her since that time. And we think she's a great example of for Catholic youth and uh, for the Catholic lay apostolate in our own time. And we're very hopeful we might get a, our second Australian saint out of this. Oh, well, thank you, Father, oh, wow. for sharing that, uh, that great story. And I think that we can take her as an inspiration and also Cardinal Pell and all his good friends. So thank you for joining us today, Father Robbie. Not at all. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. Our next guest is Professor Melissa Moschella from Catholic University. She does research and teaches on natural law, bioethics, and the family. She's also the author of the book, To Whom Do Children Belong? Parental Rights, Civic Education, and Children's Autonomy. Welcome to the show, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. There's a firestorm going on about a recent article in Harvard Magazine by a Harvard Law professor making a case for banning homeschooling. And it seems that the next progressive front in the war against the family is opening up right here. These attacks on homeschooling really aren't new. This is just maybe the the kind of latest strike in something that's been a kind of ongoing debate in the law review literature and in the, and the politics literature for, for quite some time. And the arguments in, in that recent article are just as weak as the arguments that have been made in the past. Uh, they're basically presuming that the government is the person or is the entity that better knows how to educate children by comparison with parents, that children are kind of safer in the hands of the government or, you know, professional educators in government run schools by comparison with their, with their parents. So the the article is, um, is really making a lot of false presumptions and instead of recognizing that by and large, parents are the ones who know better what their children need and recognizing and respecting the fact that parents have the authority to make those decisions about what's in their children's best interest with regard to their education, including the decision to homeschool if they believe that that's the best thing for them. Uh, the article is just suspicious of, of parents and and thinks that homeschooling is, is, is often a kind of cover for abusive parents. Uh, they're also very suspicious of religious parents and are opposed to the idea that religious parents might want to try to, you know, teach their children and pass on the values that they hold dear, uh, and instead think that all children need to be exposed to a broad variety of, of views, and that that's really important for for democracy. Of course, I, I also agree that children need to be exposed to a variety of views at the right time and in the right way, but to, but to force that on children uh, in ways that may often actually be unhelpful, uh, that is is just the wrong approach. Melissa, um, I have a laundry list of all the problems that I saw in this law review article that was cited in the, the Harvard magazine. Um, and as a lawyer, the first thing is I thought, wow, that's a whole lot of trash talk about um, and misunderstanding uh, both constitutional law and the nature of our constitutional rights and, and retw- kind of contorting our tradition. Uh, but as a mom and a mom who is a mom to many and a mom who homeschooled for a period and now has kids in private schools, I was really um, upset with the failure to recognize parents as having that role, uh, principal role as primary educators of the children. And we know uh, our Catholic faith it makes that very, very clear. But our American tradition also has respected that. And, and, and I imagine that you have a lot of experience and, and can give us that historical look at the role of parents as primary educators. Yes, that's right. Um, our, our tradition has been uh, legally uh, very respectful of the role of parents as primary educators. Several Supreme Court cases have affirmed that, you know, Children are not mere creatures of the state, right? That parents have 
the primary role in terms of guiding the education and upbringing of, of their children. Uh, one of those, uh, one of the, the most recent case that affirmed the fundamental right of parents as primary educators of their children is a case called uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin versus Yoder, uh, dealing with Amish parents who wanted to uh, take their children out of public school after eighth grade so that they could educate them at home uh, in the Amish way of life during those sort of very sensitive early teen years. And uh, the case was brought to court because Wisconsin had compulsory education laws that required that children be in formal schooling until age 16. And the parents wanted them to stop that after eighth grade, which was about age 14. Uh, so they ended up winning, winning that case. And the, the court ruled that because the Amish were succeeding in, in providing a, a particular kind of, a different kind of education, but they were continuing to educate their children. They were not failing to educate their children. And the Amish have proven to be excellent citizens. Uh, they're not a drain on society. They've been, they're peace-loving. They, uh, they work well with the rest of society. So there was no societal danger involved in the kind of education that the Amish wanted to provide for their children. And so the court ruled that, yes, this was completely within the rights of parents um, and did not go against any important state interests that would require overruling those fundamental rights of parents. What struck me reading the article was that the writer of the article, and, and I guess the Law Review article that it refers to, was very uh, negative about the people who want to homeschool. They talked about over 90% of them are conservative Christians, and they just they don't come out and throw rocks at conservative Christians, but they say, I'm going to quote, um, some of them are extreme religious ideologues who question science and promote female, female subservience and white supremacy. And I, I've known, I've never homeschooled. I am very happy with my children in private school. I was really shocked at seeing somebody speak that way about conservative Christians, and maybe I shouldn't be shocked. I've, I've had enough exposure to academics uh, like, like the ones at Harvard uh, who wrote this. Uh, were mm -hmm. you shocked at the tone of the article and, and their, the way they talk about conservative Christians? Well, I have to say that I, I wasn't shocked uh, being used to the, the, the tone in which these things often are, are spoken of. Uh, but everything that was said in that article uh, in that regard was completely unsubstantiated, even, even the, the percentage. Uh, it's actually not the case that 90% of homeschoolers are, are conservative Christians. It's a very diverse group of people, actually. Uh, many of the people who, who homeschool uh, just prefer a more unstructured environment. They disagree with the kind of test-driven educational philosophy of, of formal schooling. Uh, they want instead to inspire a kind of greater love of learning instead of concerns about passing tests in their children uh, to foster more natural curiosity to allow their children perhaps to spend more time uh, developing particular talents or skills. A lot of homeschooling parents pull their children out of public schools because of bad experiences in the public schools, because of bullying, uh, because of abuse in the schools. Uh, so Melissa, do you think about the curriculum? Do you think that they overlook the, these things? And do you think that the thrust of it, do you think it's based on bigotry, anti-Christian bigotry? I think it's just based on uh, really a, a, a misperception and, and a prejudice, because I think in many cases, uh, they're just, they're, they're making kind of blanket statements uh, without, without probably really ever having encountered that many homeschoolers. Uh, so they're, they're looking at a few extreme bad cases. I mean, it is, it is true and tragic that on rare occasions, uh, parents will use homeschooling as a, as a cover for abusive practices or neglectful practices. Uh, they'll keep them out of school to, to prevent that from being made known, but that's extremely rare. And in fact, it's much more likely, statistically speaking, that a child will suffer abuse in a public school or in any school uh, than Absolutely. that a child will suffer abuse at home. And, and that, that kind of, you know, balanced data is, is simply not given uh, so, you know, it's it's extreme. And again, and there's clearly a bias against religious parents. You know, when you when you think about people who know homeschoolers uh, and and have seen the statistics on homeschooling, in fact, in terms of academic achievement and also in terms of social capacities and so on, tests that have been done indicate that homeschoolers on average uh, do much better 
than uh, than children graduating from uh, from public schools and sometimes even from private schools. In fact, in the wake of this article, several uh, Harvard graduates, including uh, Harvard Law graduates, have written posts talking about their own homeschooling experiences and saying that they've they were editor of Harvard Law Review. They were at the top of their class, <laughs> and they were and they were homeschooled. And some of them, you know, homeschooled almost completely off the grid. Uh, you know. In, in, the, in the ways in which the author is worried about. So basically they're saying, you know, look, this article doesn't reflect the reality. Uh, and, and above all, it just doesn't reflect the, the basic uh, principle of the natural moral law and also principle of constitutional law that there is this fundamental right that parents have uh, to direct the education and upbringing of their children. If you're just tuning in, this is Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We're speaking with Melissa Moschella, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Melissa, before we turn to the next topic that we wanted to speak with you, I wanted just to say my final thoughts on this issue. I don't think that this is just an attack on homeschooling. I think that the same arguments that are being presented, um, kind of, you know, uh, second-guessing parents' decisions could be used to attack private school decisions, uh, placements, and especially religious placements at schools. And and the issue, I think, that, that does warrant uh, attention is making sure that children, whether they're in a homeschooling situation, a private parochial school, a private Christian school, or a private secular school, or public school, are free from abuse, are free from any kind of uh, difficulties, but that doesn't have anything to do with the structure that's set up. Um, it's more about a concern for the good of the child, and strengthening parents is the best way to keep our kids safe. That's right. But we have so many things that we want to talk to you uh, about, Melissa. And and the other big issue that I think that you have incredible expertise on is um, dealing with bioethics and ethical decisions in the face of the pandemic. And we were interested if you could share a little bit about some of your recent writings and collective writings on this issue. So there's been uh, a recent uh, essay that was published in the public discourse, which talked about some principles to keep in mind uh, when we think about the the possibility, uh, hopefully uh, not the reality, but uh, the possibility should it come to that of needing to ration care uh, if we end up with uh, too many people who need, say, ICU beds or, or ventilators and and don't have enough resources to to provide those. Um, there have been a number of um, articles on about this, including in the New England Journal of Medicine and other places. And uh, the the joint statement that I uh, that I signed on this emphasized a bedrock principle, uh, both of uh, Catholic uh, social teaching and again of, of natural law and, and civilization in general, which is the, the profound inherent equal dignity of every human being. Uh, that's really the fundamental principle that needs to be respected in, in all of these decisions. And so while, yes, it may sometimes be necessary to make triage type decisions, those decisions should never be based on any judgment that one life is more worthy than another life. It's very easy, Melissa, to fall into that uh, pattern of thinking in the the culture that we live in now that uh, is utilitarian in essence, right? And, And it puts a value, a very high value on youth and health. And right. and then it asks us to judge people's worth according to their productive capacity and their chances of future happiness. And we hear this over and over again in lots of different scenarios, but we can see them uh, also being used uh, when we talk about uh, triage and rationing in healthcare. That's right. So uh, so what we recommend is that really the, the, the primary basis for making any such decisions should have nothing to do with any judgment about this person's life is worth more than that person's life because that's false, right? Every, everybody has equal dignity. Every life is of equal value. Uh, however, you need to have a basis for making these decisions and that should primarily be a consideration of who can benefit more from the treatment, right? So from a clinical mm-hmm. perspective, who is more likely 
to benefit from this treatment to be able to recover as the result of of receiving the medical treatment and that would be a reasonable basis for for making those decisions we should not be making those decisions on the basis of say oh one person is older or oh this person is disabled and so you know we discount those in favor of the younger and and the healthier we think that that is uh, a dangerous way of thinking about that that undermines the principle of the equal dignity of every human person Person. Uh, we do think there's there's room for uh, prioritizing uh, the the frontline healthcare workers who are are so needed uh, in this crisis and who are putting themselves at special risk, of course, by being in contact, uh, uh, very close contact with uh, with patients who have the the coronavirus. So uh, so that would be a a consideration that has nothing to do with the inherent you know, value of one person versus another, but it's simply a consideration that, that recognizes the particular need uh, that we have in these circumstances uh, for, you know, these highly trained healthcare workers for the sake of, of the common good, for the sake of being able to, to save as many lives um, as possible. You know, Melissa, one thing that I really appreciated about um, the joint statement was that you and, and the other uh, signatures showed that this is a burden that is not to be borne exclusively by the doctors and the institutions. This is a societal burden that we must face, that we must deal with, you know, with, with legal principles. We, we mentioned uh, a couple shows ago about the great uh, guidance issued by the Office of Civil Rights at HHS that says, you know, you can't make decisions um, that are discriminatory based on disability or on age, exactly. but also this this bioethical, this ethical overlay on it, I think, tells a doctor, and Gracie, I'm hoping that you can jump in, that you're not alone in facing this, because it's a pretty daunting decision-making process that a doctor, especially in a case of, of an overtaxed institution, would have to make. I know, um, you know, I always try to, like, sing the praises of Gracie. She recently uh, published an article in the Washington Times on this very issue from the pe- perspective of a doctor. Uh, Gracie, maybe you would... Well, you, you know, overcome your humility and tell us more <laughs> about that. Well, the article is about the fact that uh, that medicine, unfortunately, has been changing from its Hippocratic, Western medicine, I mean, from its Hippocratic uh, beginnings and, and the way it was practiced for so many centuries with the idea that, again, all, all patients are worthy of treatment. Um, and the question is not, is this patient worthy of the treatment? But the question is, is the treatment worthwhile? And that there are certain, there's a couple of practices in medicine that have been changing this Hippocratic uh, ideal into a more utilitarian ideal, and I think it's abortion and assisted suicide, because then it, it creates different classes of patients. Um, doctors, uh, OBGYNs, for instance, uh, some of their unborn patients are worthy of care and concern, and some are not because some are unwanted by the mothers and, and can be aborted. And then, in, in, of course, in the case of assisted suicide, you have patients who you uh, are deemed to be in a certain class where their lives are so mir- miserable and so useless that uh, they should be allowed to end them or help to end them. So in my, my experience with medicine has been that th- this is a sad trend and, and that we have to do as doctors and as the whole con- all of us as a culture have to demand a more noble patient-centered medicine. Does that, does that make sense to you, Melissa? Absolutely. Yes, I, I think um, it's, it's really, really important to uphold the distinction between uh, killing and letting die. Uh, and that often, you know, people are, are trying to elide that distinction uh, and to deny that that distinction exists and using that to try to push euthanasia, saying, well, if we will allow somebody to refuse uh, extraordinary or disproportionate medical care, then we should also allow somebody to choose to hasten their death mm-hmm. uh, by more direct means like like assisted suicide or, or euthanasia. But that is just a false equivalence, right? As you said, we, we always need to be judging, is this treatment worthwhile, not is this patient's life worthwhile? And when you're making reasonable decisions to, say, refuse or withdraw uh, disproportionately burdensome medical care, your judgment is about the worthwhileness of the treatment. Mm. Does, do the benefits of this treatment outweigh the burdens of this treatment? And if not, 
then it could be reasonable to forego that treatment, even if you foresee that a person may die sooner without the treatment, right? But you're not intending to hasten the patient's death. That's extremely different from any intentional choice to hasten a patient's death uh, because of the view that the patient's quality of life is so low uh, that they are that they are better off dying sooner. Melissa, do you get a sense that this very difficult time in our our history, right, the pandemic and and quarantine, stay-at-home orders, uh, overtaxed health care situations, are giving us an opportunity to kind of reset the button, to go back and think about core principles of who we are, what kind of country we want to be, what kind of people, what kind of world we want to be with regard to valuing each and every human being as as having infinite dignity? I think it does provide us with that opportunity. And and I think that the the time uh, that, that many people now have can be an opportunity for greater reflection, the being faced with the prospect of serious illness and death in a way that, you know, as a society as a whole, uh, we have not been been faced with uh, in, you know, in kind of known known memory uh, for, for most of us, right? All of that, I think, spurs important reflection on the value of life, uh, the inherent dignity of every human life. And so I hope that as a society, we will, we will take this opportunity and, and use it to reaffirm these core uh, principles that are really are, are at the heart of what makes a society great. Well, this this article that, that you co-authored in Public Discourse is definitely worth reading. I think it has a, a lot of uh, food for thought for all of our listeners. We highly recommend it. And thank you so much, Melissa Moschella, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Thank you. We have to take a short break, but stay tuned. Don't go away. Next up, we have Father Kirby to talk to us about difficult end-of-life decisions. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is EWTN Radio. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and joined by my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea picciotti Bear. Earlier in the show, we were speaking with Melissa Moschello, who's Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, about ethical guidance for healthcare institutions and professionals. And now we turn to the patient perspective and the patient's family perspective. We have the distinct pleasure of having Father Jeffrey Kirby, pastor of Our Lady of Grace in Indian Land, South Carolina to discuss his book exactly on this topic, We Are the Lords, A Catholic Guide to Difficult End-of-Life Questions. Welcome, Father. Thank you. It's good to be on the show. Father, the coronavirus pandemic has put the process of dying very much into the center and forefront of all our minds. We are very, uh, we're, we're thinking, no, we may have to confront this ourselves very soon or help a loved one through the process. And as a culture, we've been people who have been avoiding that topic very much and turning away from it, letting hospitals and nursing homes take us through it, maybe without us having a lot of input into it. So you wrote this very good book about how to approach end-of-life decisions from a perspective of knowing that we are the Lord's. So you start, and this rung very true to me in the beginning of your book, you said, the path of transitioning from this life to the next is a difficult one, but it doesn't have to be a distressing one. Distress is caused by uncertainty, which festers into dilemmas. And this rings very true to me from a medical perspective, watching people manage death. And, And I do feel that the most distressing part of it, the distress comes from not knowing what to do. Yes, very much, very much. In fact, uh, your, your first point I thought was uh, very well made in the sense that, you know, this uh, pandemic has has forced suffering and death to the forefront, uh, not simply in terms of our society, but also in terms of the body of believers. And, and in one sense, for uh, we Christians and, and Catholics, uh, this is a very much a retrieval. I mean, from the time we're about seven years old, we learn in the Hail Mary uh, to pray for a holy death. Uh, the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday, the traditional formulas, you are God's sons and God's you shall return. So in our Christian spirituality, the awareness of death and the preparation for holy death uh, is very much there. And, and of course, this pandemic has allowed us 
uh, to retrieve that. Uh, with that retrieval and that placing back of this beautiful uh, spiritual exercise of preparing for a holy death is also clarity in terms of how to die well. So the title of the book, We Are the Lords, it's actually a quote from St. Paul. Like St. Paul says, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we are the Lord's. Uh, he was speaking specifically within the terms, the realm of, of martyrdom, but it applies to us today. Uh, our dying process is one of the last gifts we give to the Lord in this life, and we are to do it well. There's no pause on our discipleship. And just because we have been good disciples and then suddenly come to the dying process and say, well, forget it. I'm going to die however I want. I'm in charge. Uh, no, we, we need the clarity of, of the church's teachings of, of the gospel in order to help us to navigate these questions well so that we can die well so a life lived in the Lord can be a death that is also given to the Lord. Father, um, in the beginning of your book also, you kind of give a good check-in to all of us and especially it's it's super countercultural message um, and it's focused on the inherent dignity of each and every person and as we're dealing with what seems like kind of a, a heavy cloud over all of us right now you have a reminder that in our relationships no person is a burden and yeah, no, and it was very, it's very important, especially th in thinking about um, my my own parents, my children, sometimes our responsibilities towards them can be difficult and weighty, but our relationships with them is aren't burdensome. Is that a concept that you think is, is a challenging concept for our, our society right now, for our church even? Absolutely. In, in fact, there are certain buzzwords. I mean, the, you know, the, the cultural battle begins with language. So we have battles over dignity, battles over burden, quality of life. We can identify the words that are being redefined by the culture of death in order to become attractive or to appear reasonable uh, to our culture. So, for example, we hear this conversation a lot about burden. People have been convinced well, you have to do this, you have to allow your life to be terminated, or you have to, you know, no longer ask for help, or you have to suspend what are moral options, because you don't want to be a burden. You know, people have said to me, well, Father, I don't want to be a burden to my children. And my response is, well, too late. <laughs> You've been a burden <laughs> they were born, okay? You know, uh, life and love is about burdens, but in Paul says we, St. Paul tells us we should readily carry the burdens of our brothers. So love is about burdens, but to clarify that care and love and acts of love can be burdensome. People are never burdens. So the person who says, well, I help to take care of my elderly mother. I have a full-time job. I have my own family at home. I have multiple children. This is very burdensome. Yes, the care is burdensome. But your mother is not a burden. And we have to be very careful in how we clarify that language. People are not burdens. They're in the image of God. They are blessings to us. I oftentimes tell older people, <laughs> be a burden to your children. Force all that wonderful virtue out of them. You know, help mm -hmm. them to continue to grow and to prosper as human beings as children of God. What a good way to think about that, Father, and so true. Another word that, that just came up and also that is uh, a word of contention, a concept of contention is dignity, especially when we talk about death with dignity or dying with dignity. I think in mo modern people, they think uh, that they can deal with death as long as they can maintain their dignity. And I think by that, they mean that there won't be any humiliating moments when they lose control of the situation or, or they lose control of their fear, of their, of their pain. This phrase, death with dignity, is even used to promote suicide and euthanasia as being more dignified than a natural death. I believe that that's a, an erroneous reading of the word dignity. So what is the true reading of human dignity? Yes, oftentimes people will say, Father, I, I want to die with dignity. And I say, well, I have good news. You will, right? Uh, you will, because our dignity is not given by our health. It's not given by a medical community. It's not even given to us by ourselves. Uh, our dignity is a gift from our Creator. And oftentimes what happens in the culture of death is dignity is made a synonym of quality of life. 
quality of life becomes a synonym of autonomy. I will do what I want when I want. When I can no longer do that, I have a bad quality of life. My dignity has been taken from me. Therefore, I want to die. You can see the trend and the manipulation of the culture of death, how it convinces people one step after another in order to eventually take their own lives or to not accept moral options for their care. So dignity is given to us by God. Nothing can take it from us. You know, Father, I've been thinking a lot with uh, the time that I have at home with the extra challenges and responsibilities and managing a household and and the anxiety of this time. And I've, I've definitely encountered a lot more suffering, just personal suffering, even though no one in my family has been touched by the virus. Just having things be um, more difficult and out of routine has definitely been a hardship in many ways. And when I think about people that are clinging on to the notion of death with dignity in a in an erroneous way, it seems like there's a fear of suffering. And you make clear, and the church has made clear, the redemptive value of suffering, not just for the person who suffers, but for the community. Yeah, so redemptive suffering is something that is, uh, as you're indicating, is at the heart of the Christian faith. So so my book was written uh, from a, a very manifest Christian perspective, although I would argue that many of the things we hold to can be discerned and accepted by any person of goodwill. But this notion of redemptive suffering is at the heart of our faith because it, it was precisely the suffering of Christ that merited us salvation. In our own lives as baptized Christians, when we suffer, we have the power to offer it up. Good nuns used to teach, offer it up, you know. And, and, and so spiritual depth there that oftentimes maybe we didn't understand or appreciate. That when I suffer and I choose to unite my sufferings with Christ, then my sufferings receive grace and power. That means my suffering doesn't have the last word. My suffering cannot overwhelm me. I place all of my suffering in the service of Christ and his work of redemption. That is a powerful spiritual awareness that we must keep as Christians because, you know, certainly there's more suffering now in terms of the pandemic and, and the quarantine, but it's an opportunity for us as all as Christians and, and people of goodwill to realize that our suffering can have a power to bring forth a greater good. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We've been speaking with Father Jeffrey Kirby about Catholic teaching on end-of-life issues. And you know, Father, we've been having conversations with friends, sometimes on Zoom or by the phone, because we're not seeing a lot of friends these days. I think for many of us, it's come up, the issue has come up. So what is the, the right approach at the end of life as far as what care is morally obligatory and what care is morally optional? Thankfully, your wor- your book has uh, wonderful explanations on this, but I even want to drill down a little deeper because as we hear stories about ventilators, we are starting to question, well, even if we understand the difference between obligatory things that we must do, like, like food and hydration and things that are extraordinary, I think it gets very hard when we're in the thicket and we're trying to actually decide between one thing and another. So first, the, the, the language you're, you're introducing, I, I want to emphasize is that whenever there's all this sermon, we distinguish between ordinary care and extraordinary care. Ordinary care is morally obligatory. It means we, we must do it as people of goodwill, as, as Christian believers. And then extraordinary, which means it's morally optional. Each person is free to decline. And that distinction is very important for us because oftentimes people will think, well, well, no, Catholic teachings say that you have to use every possible means to preserve life to the absolute end and so on. That is not our teachings. There are times when we know that life is a good on this earth, but it's not an absolute good. That this life here leads to eternal life. And there are times in which a person can morally choose not to accept certain care and allow the natural dying process to play itself out. What distinguishes that? First, a complete respect for objective truth. So in our discernment, there is a fence around the field of our discernment. We cannot take life. We cannot take our own life. These moral certainties that cannot be violated. So first, there's these moral objective truths that must be respected as people of goodwill, Christian believers. Secondly, we have to respect our human vocation. This is a vocation we share as all human beings. It means if I see someone who is dirty, I clean them. 
even if someone says, why are you cleaning them? Why are you wasting your time? They're going to die anyway because they're a human being, because we share a human vocation. It means I have to take care of this person, even if they're going to die anyway. We have a human vocation that has to be respected. And third, we have to realize our own vocation. You know, as Catholics, we understand the principle of solidarity, because I seek to serve and help all people, but we also understand subsidiarity. That care begins with those that I'm immediately responsible for. So those brief three principles can help us to discern what is ordinary or extraordinary care. I think when things really get bad and the state of affairs become very confusing, now more than ever, as we see this happening with this pandemic, we have to hold on to these moral principles so that we don't lose our civility in the midst of crisis. We can very easily, if we're not careful, slide into a barbarism that we are uh, were created to uh, far exceed and, and were made for greater things uh, than these barbaric efforts. For example, when we see certain uh, states who said, well, if you have special needs or if you're of severe older age, just based on that alone, you will not receive medical care. That's a grave violation of human dignity and of our civility as human beings and as Americans. I was talking with some friends uh, over the internet. There were some questions raised by a colleague in a Catholic women's symposium, and she was concerned for her older mother and was looking for some guidance, especially on issues of intubation and the decision to intubate a person. And I, I took my phone out and I took pictures of that part of your book and sent it to her. And, and a number of people responded and many people had experienced the situation of sitting by a loved one's bedside as they were in their last moments. They commented that in their experience, the provision of oxygen when a person was having difficulty being able to be fully oxygenated was just like food and hydration in their experience. I wonder if the pandemic, especially the nature, the respiratory attack of this virus on its patients, does that give you, has that given you any chance to think more deeply about the provision of oxygen as extraordinary versus ordinary care? Yes, and very much. I mean, this, this raises several questions in light of the pandemic. And I would always encourage people to take those basic principles of discernment in terms of ordinary or extraordinary care and to apply them. So it would be wrong for us to say that someone simply because they are a certain age or because they have special needs cannot receive medical care. That would be a morally wrong act or, or public policy but for a person to discern and say well you know or to guide a loved one to discern to say you know uh, I, I'm of older age I have multiple health issues I know that there's a limitation of resources uh, this this will not help me the possibility of of me recovering from this is is, is very low and so on the person we then to discern with their loved one and of course the loved one is the one who has to make the decision unless uh, they lose that ability uh, that it can become a morally uh, option to decline the use of, of, of breathing assistance and so on. So, so that becomes a very pressing question, and, and I think that our, our answers are there. And if we walk through them, we can come to great peace. I think one of the great tragedies of working with a loved one is when it is discerned that it's extraordinary care, the person does uh, lose their life. And then the loved one who assisted feels guilty. How many people have confessed euthanasia when a moral discernment as the confessor I'm willing to, shape, to, to show them uh, that was not euthanasia. In fact, that was a morally good decision. But oftentimes the caregiver can carry tremendous guilt and sometimes needlessly un, without foundation. So I think that the whole process is there and it's there to assist us to make sound moral decisions. It's very complicated though because as, as medical care advances, we are presented with more and more options. And some of these options 
become more accessible. They're they're more easily you can more easily find them, and and they become affordable. They seem they seem very ordinary options <laughs> because they're all around us. So I I think that it would be very good for people to have not just your book, but also somebody that they could reach out to. Who who does a regular Catholic reach out to when they are faced with these very complicated dilemmas? For instance, uh, maybe somebody uh, has a need for nutrition. They're no longer able to eat, but is it extraordinary to use uh, a feeding tube uh, directly, well, first of all, through the nose, then directly into the stomach, and then there's even ways of feeding a person just through parenteral nutrition through their through an IV, which is, yes. is doable. Yes. So yes. how do we, how do, when we get that complicated, how do we, how, who do we turn to? Yes, I think one of the, the best and more accessible resources is the National Catholic Bioethics Center. One could Google that, uh, the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, they have a great resource uh, and, and on their website, but also they answer questions directly. Uh, a person could also reach out to their local priest. The priest himself is unable to answer the question. He can help the person find uh, someone within our moral field uh, that can assist them. So in my diocese, the moral theologian, I've been trained in moral theology, my doctorate from the Holy Cross University and a master's in bioethics. So my brother priest will sometimes reach out to me and say, hey, I have this parishioner with this question. And oftentimes I'll have to follow up, say, I need some more information on this or this or this, because when we're discerning a situation, we have one situation, we have only one situation. <laughs> they're, they're all different. Mm-hmm. So I think that more accessible they can just reach out to their parish priest and if he's not able to he can assist them to find that on the national level which is also accessible to anyone is the National Catholic Bioethics Center uh, and then as we've indicated there are some resources uh, my book is one of a few that are out there that attempt to be more readable uh, and approachable to anyone well it's an excellent book father and I highly recommend it to all our listeners where can they buy your book we Are the Lords, A Catholic Guide to Difficult End-of-Life Questions. I would encourage uh, to go directly to the publisher, uh, Tan Books. Well, thank you so much, Father, for your book and for spending this time with us today. Our listeners can find more information on Father Kirby's other books. They can visit fatherkirby.com, that's frkirby.com, or follow him on Twitter at Father Kirby. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news, items are specific selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Please stay tuned for a very inspiring homily by Father Roger Landry to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, it's based on one of the most famous dialogues he has in sacred scriptures, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus on the night he rose from the dead. Jesus met the two disciples along the seven-mile downhill path from Jerusalem to Emmaus. That the two disciples were heading away from Jerusalem was not just an historical fact, but a symbol that they were heading away from the faith that Jerusalem symbolizes. Their hearts had just been put in a blender. They had believed in Jesus, deeming him to be the long-awaited Messiah, yet their hopes were crushed when they saw him mangled and executed by the Romans. Early that day, women had said that the tomb was empty and that they had seen a vision of angels saying Jesus had risen, but they were obviously reluctant to believe again and have their hopes crushed anew. Jesus met them along their way. He met them where they were at with all their questions and doubts, but their sadness and likely some undescribed changes in Jesus' resurrected body prevented them from recognizing him. The seeming stranger stuck his nose in the middle of their conversation and asked, what are you talking about? They thought he had no idea. So they told him about Jesus, a prophet mighty in word and deed, who they thought might be the one to redeem Israel, but who was betrayed and crucified. But then the incognito Jesus upbraided them, called them foolish and slow of heart to believe, not slow of mind, but slow of heart, and starting with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted for them all the passage of sacred scripture that referred to why the Messiah had to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Doubtless he would have mentioned Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders, Moses 
leading his God's people through the Red Sea and desert into the promised land, how Isaiah had given the prophecy of the suffering servant, how the book of wisdom described that the just man would be beset by evildoers, how the Psalms had foretold so many details of the crucifixion, how Jonah prophesied Jesus would spend three days in the belly of the earth, and so much more. As he was talking, the light of truth began to penetrate the great darkness of their sadness. Their hearts began to burn as he spoke to them along the way. Even though they still didn't recognize who he was, they didn't want the experience to end. Hence, they invited this wayfarer into their home. Stay with us, they said. Jesus never wants to force himself on us. He wants to be invited. And they invited Jesus. But Jesus had something far greater in mind than merely staying with them. That's why when he was at table, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then he seemed to vanish from their midst. But he hadn't vanished at all, because as those four verbs indicate to us, he had celebrated with them the Eucharist, as he had with his apostles three nights earlier in the upper room. They could no longer see Jesus with their eyes, but Jesus remained with them under the appearances of the Eucharist. The Lord did not merely want to stay with them, but to remain in them. Then even though it was already night and there were no streetlights in the ancient world, even though they were probably exhausted from the seven-mile journey downhill, they burst through the doors of their home and ran those seven miles uphill in pitch blackness in order to spread the word of Jesus' resurrection to the apostles. They had come into contact with Jesus. Their hearts were burning, and now even their feet were burning, and they couldn't wait even until the morning to share that news. We learned so much from this scene. We learn what Jesus wishes to do with us in life. He wants to join our conversation. He wants to help us interpret present events, including and especially our crosses and difficulties, in the light of what he's revealed. He wants to give light to the questions we have. Are we aware that he's with us on the road to our home and accompanies us on our journey? Second, we learn so much about the Mass. Many saints and scholars have seen in Jesus' interaction with the two disciples the outline of the Mass, that journey interpreting sacred scriptures, the liturgy of the Word, the breaking of the bread as the liturgy of the Eucharist, and then the disciples leaving and sharing that news with others is the dismissal in which we are blessed by God and sent with the instruction, go and proclaim the gospel to all creatures. This is what's supposed to occur in the Mass. The more we read about Jesus' miracles, the easier it is for us to accept the mind-blowing reality of the continuous miracle of the Eucharist. And the more we see both of those realities, the more we burst with the desire to share Jesus with others and run with enthusiasm to share that great news. The last application I'll mention is with regard to those we know have given up the practice of the faith. Many today are like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem and all it symbolizes with regard to God and faith and heading downhill into darkness away from God's light. The reasons they're leaving, Pope Francis said in a powerful address to bishops in Brazil in 2013, contain the seeds of their return. Just like the two disciples were leaving because they thought Jesus' crucifixion was a contradiction of messianic prophecy. When the unrecognized Jesus helped them to see there was rather a confirmation of those prophecies, that's when the whole world flipped right side up. We need to do the same with those who have drifted from the church, accompanying them, entering into dialogue with them, taking their questions seriously, and trying to bring a proper understanding of revelation to their doubts. If they're leaving because of a lack of holiness manifested by the sex abuse scandals, we need to help them not obsess about the Judases, but on the successors of the other 11 who have remained faithful. If they're leaving because they think the church hates those with same-sex attractions, we need to help them to see how Jesus and his church loves those with same-sex attractions even more because we love them with the truth about who we are and what God gives. If they're leaving because of unanswered prayers to save the life of a loved one, we need to help them to see that God's will for our loved ones involves a life far greater than even the best of earthly experiences. The reasons for their departure, as we see in the Emmaus Road, contain the seeds of their return. Pope Francis asked in Brazil whether there was still a church capable of warming hearts, of leading people back to Jerusalem. Well, when our hearts are on fire with God's love and his word in the sacraments, we sure are. So let's let Jesus fully enter into dialogue with us as we ponder the scene of Emmaus, so that through this consequential conversation, he can ignite us and equip us to be his instruments to set the world ablaze.
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. And that brings us to the close of our show, friends. Catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. You can also listen to this show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or just go directly to wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We hope we've brought you some happiness or comfort in this difficult time. As always, you go with our prayers. 